We are currently at a celebratory point in the liturgical calendar known as Epiphany. And as I've stated before, the word Epiphany simply means a revelatory manifestation of a divine being. And the Gospel of St. John presents us with seven epiphanies of the Christ, or seven accounts in which someone acknowledges the manifestation of Jesus's divinity. For example, within the narrative of John's gospel, someone will declare a statement like, we know that this is indeed the savior of the world, or we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So then, here at All Saints Church, this Epiphany season, we are exploring the seven epiphanies of Jesus as the Christ presented throughout the Gospel of St. John. With that, today's sermon comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And these verses record an Epiphany account that took place as a result of Jesus performing his first miracle. And as we consider this event, which communicates a revelatory manifestation of Jesus's divine nature, I want us to understand three things this morning. Number one, the sign of the miracle. Number two, the substance of the miracle. And number three, the epiphany as a result of the miracle. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that text and then pray a prayer of illumination. John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. and The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will reveal to us the significance and importance of Jesus's first miracle. Father, help us to rightly understand your word, and then help us to live in light of this knowledge. We pray this by the power of the Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
To begin, let us draw our attention to my first point, the sign of the miracle. And in order to fully grasp the significance of the miracle, we need to consider three subpoints. The first is the occasion for the miracle in verses one through two. Second, the problematic circumstances that led to the miracle in verses three through five, and the miraculous act itself in verses six through 10. So look at verses one through two as we consider this first subpoint, the occasion for the miracle. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The third day is a marker from the last event that took place in chapter one. On this day, a wedding was celebrated in the region of Galilee in a neighboring town of Nazareth called Cana. And if you are not aware, Galilee is in the northern region of Israel in which Jesus was from. His hometown was the village of Nazareth in the southern part of Galilee, and Cana was adjacent to it. And there is a lot of speculation concerning whose wedding this was and what their relationship to Jesus might have been. Some commentators have suggested that this was a relative of Jesus or a close family friend, given the close proximity between Nazareth and Cana, which is not unreasonable in terms of an assumption. However, the text doesn't tell us those details. Instead, we are simply told that Mary, Jesus, and his disciples were all invited as guests to this wedding. <laughs> So then the occasion for the miracle is a wedding. And that brings us to the second subpoint: the problematic circumstances that led to the miracle. Look at verses three through five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Often when people read this account, especially for the first time, they are taken back by what appears to be Jesus being abrasive to his mother Mary. Addressing her as woman appears to be cold and harsh. However, Biblical scholars have noted that this title in the original Greek, which is translated as woman in English, was a sign of respect and endearment within antiquity. For example, Jesus addresses his mother in the same exact way towards the end of John's gospel in a very beautiful and emotional moment in the narrative. Jesus is hanging on the cross the nails are pierced through his hands and feet. He is struggling to breathe. And John records the following. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, 
behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So it is the same title, the same word. Both accounts express endearment or at least respect. So it is wrong for us to perceive Jesus as being rude or abrasive to Mary here in this account, particularly if that perception is based on the word or title woman. Instead, we should understand Jesus as being respectful while noting that it was not his moment or this particular moment to fully reveal his glory. In John 13, 31 and John 17, 1, Jesus infers that the crucifixion will be the moment in history in which he will fully display his glory. In fact, in which the Father will glorify the Son. So simply stated, Jesus is acknowledging that this is not that moment. The problem at hand was that the bridegroom ran out of wine. In the first century, it was custom for the groom to pay for the wedding ceremony and celebration. And running out of wine presented the groom with two issues. First, this most certainly would have been a point of embarrassment, as this could have been easily perceived as an inability to provide financially, which provision is part and parcel to the role and responsibility of a husband. Second, running out of wine could have had certain legal ramifications. New Testament scholars have found evidence from ancient Jewish history that suggests running out of provisions at a feast like this was cause for something like that of a civil lawsuit. So rooted in the biblical law that a husband is bound and required to provide Running out of wine was truly disastrous. Because of Mary's concern about the wine being gone, some commentators have suggested and speculated that the bride or groom were perhaps one of Jesus' siblings. Thus, Mary wanting to avoid embarrassment or a lawsuit for her son or new son-in-law, she is sincere in personally invested in trying to find a solution. While that is very plausible, again, the text doesn't tell us those details. However, John the Evangelist does record what R.C. Sproul says is some of the wisest counsel ever given. In verse 5, Mary tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. Five words that are certainly objectively applicable for you and me. Do whatever Jesus tells you. So the problem that led to the miracle is one of embarrassment and legal ramifications. This brings us to the third subpoint: The miraculous act itself. Draw your attention to verses 6 through 10. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. What we have in these verses is John's eyewitness account of Jesus turning water into wine. And the creation of water into wine demonstrates Jesus's divinity as who other than God exercises such authority over the physical properties and elements of the created order. Furthermore, John precisely tells us in his prologue that Jesus is one with the Father and the co-eternal creator. Quote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If you want to fully understand the gospel of St. John, you must begin with his prologue. It is in his introductory remarks that John makes authoritative and objective truth claims about Jesus, particularly that Jesus is God in the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God from God, true light from true light. And after making such claims, John uses his gospel narrative to prove and validate every single statement that he made about Jesus in the prologue. So chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 20, verse 25, is John's way of proving everything he has to say about Jesus in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And as it relates to apologetics, John in his gospel, employs a tactical argument from evidence. He states who Jesus is in the prologue and then provides key data to confirm and demonstrate his claims. When recounting events, St. John provides his readers with a time, a place, and people who were present who could substantiate and corroborate his eyewitness account during the first century. So here at this wedding in Cana, as Jesus miraculously turns water into wine, he reveals his divinity as creator God, just as John claimed in his prologue. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus's miracle of turning water into wine, of exercising complete authority over the created order, validates, affirms, substantiates, and proves John's claim that Jesus is God. And this is further highlighted by John's marking of eight days. While verse one of chapter two made mention of a third day, it's the third day from the last recorded event in chapter one. The wedding day, the day of the miracle, marks the eighth day 
since John began to write a chronological record. So look at John chapter 1 with me. In verses 1 through 18 of the first chapter, we have John's famous prologue, that which I just quoted from. Then beginning in verse 19, a timeline begins. Verses 19 through 28 comprise one day. And then verses 29 through 34 are a second day. Verses 35 through 39 constitute a third day. And then in verses 40 through 42, after the two disciples had spent the previous night with Jesus, there is marked a fourth day on which Andrew tells Peter, we have found the Messiah. And then verses 43 through 50 constitute a fifth day on which Philip and Nathaniel experience their own epiphanies. So then the beginning of chapter two is three days from the last event. Therefore, it marks eight days in chapter one, verse 19. And the significance of John marking eight days has to do with the creation account. I assume that we are all aware of Genesis chapter one and the emphasis on a six-day creation account. On six days, God created, and on the seventh, he rested. This is a pattern of six plus one. However, as I just said, it is on the eighth day that this miracle of turning water into wine is performed, which gives us a pattern of seven plus one. Now, you may be asking, how does eight days relate to seven days of creation? Well, some of our spiritual fathers here at All Saints Church, men such as Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, and Greg Strawbridge, have all written extensively about the biblical pattern of seven plus one, particularly as it relates to Lord's Day worship. For example, in his insightful work, In the Breaking of the Bread, Dr. Strawbridge explains, the eighth day, which represents the first day of a new week, completes the sequence of a new creation. The Lord's Day is the first day of the week, the numerical eighth day, when one counts from the first creation day. The pattern of seven plus one is a formula in which a full seven days of creation plus one day equals the start of a new week. Thus, Christians have always worshipped on the first day of the week, the day of the new creation, the eighth day, seven plus one. Therefore, as St. John records an eight-day chronological account, He is indicating the dawn of a new creation, demonstrated by the creator God, creating new wine from old water. Now, all of that covers the first point, the sign of the miracle. This leads us to the second point, the substance and the full meaning of the miracle. The Greek word semion which is translated as sign in verse 11, 
can mean sign or miracle. In fact, this word is translated into English as both sign and miracle throughout the New Testament. But I believe the ESV rightly translates this as sign, given the context of a new creation here in John chapter 2. The miracle of changing water into wine, while it did reveal the divinity of Jesus, it was pointing towards something greater. It was a sign connected to the wine and the new creation, namely the cup of the new covenant, Christ's blood shed for you and me. And it is important to recognize that Jesus, being God, could have summoned new wine from heaven like manna. Or he could have struck a rock and new wine would have streamed out. Jesus was not limited to these six stone water jars. Instead, Jesus purposefully commissioned those jars, which John explains were utilized for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, the designation Jewish rites is an indication by John that the ceremonial washing for which these jars were used, was part of the rabbinical tradition and teaching and not the law of God. We are given a glimpse into what these jars were used for in a different account recorded in Matthew's gospel. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus changing water into wine at a wedding on the eighth day was no coincidence, and neither was his use of these six jars. That is because the jars represented all man-made attempts at self-purification, self-cleansing, and self-righteousness. In contrast, the new wine prefigured the cup of the new covenant, which represents Jesus's blood, which was shed for our justification. The cup of the new covenant represents God's efficacious means of purification, cleansing, and righteousness by the blood of Jesus. In his first epistle, St. John explains, quote, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Pharisees and scribes, the tradition of the rabbis, had a man-made attempt at purification. But John points out in the epistle that it is the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
His blood was shed to atone for our sins, for which we deserve God's wrath. And this was prefigured in the ceremonial sacrifices of the Old Covenant, which foreshadowed Jesus' work of atonement and expiation. As we saw last week, Jesus is the Lamb who took away the sin of the world by his life, death, and resurrection. The miracle of changing water, which was used for ceremonial cleansing, into wine was a sign pointing to the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, represented in the cup of the new covenant. And this is the substance of the miracle, the true meaning of that which the sign was pointing toward. This brings us to the third and final point I want us to leave here with this morning. And that is the epiphany itself. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples that are mentioned here in verse 11 most likely represent the five disciples described in chapter 1. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. This is a popular opinion as all 12 disciples are not mentioned in John's gospel until chapter 6. With this, there are two important applications to note. First, John is particular, as he writes and records, about highlighting the faith of the disciples. And this is important because it is by faith that we experience the efficacious work that the cup of the new covenant represents. The Apostle Paul explains in Galatians chapter 2, quote, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, there was a misunderstanding of how the cup of the new covenant became effectual in one's life. Some thought that simply partaking of the Eucharist conferred the saving grace of which it pointed to. People thought if one only ate the bread and drank the wine, the cleansing blood of Jesus would be applied. And in his Institutes on Christian Religion, John Calvin writes extensively against such position, noting that it is by faith we experience the cleansing blood of Jesus, which the cup of the new covenant represents. So Calvin says the following, the schools of the sophists have taught with remarkable agreement that the sacraments of the new law, those now used in the Christian church, justify and confer grace. How deadly and pestilential this notion cannot be expressed. Of a certainty, it is diabolical. For in promising righteousness apart from faith, it hurls souls headlong to destruction. 
Secondly, because it draws the cause of righteousness from the sacraments rather than God himself. Like John the Evangelist, John Calvin emphasizes faith in Jesus as the means of experiencing the cleansing blood which is represented in the cup. In agreement with Calvin, the Westminster Divine stated that the sacraments themselves do not accomplish what they represent. For example, an unbeliever is not cleansed by sin by simply partaking of the wine, which depicts the cleansing blood. Quote, although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the thing signified thereby. Calvin and the Westminster Confession of Faith agree that it is by faith that the substance of the cup is experienced. Likewise, Dr. Greg Strawbridge explained the function of faith in partaking of the sacraments when he wrote the following on communion. Quote, the Eucharist rite and action is feeding upon Jesus by faith at the table and experiencing his presence in the breaking of the bread. This shows that we are abiding in him. This is proof that we believe he is the bread of life. Because of this, when you come to the table here at All Saints Church, we exhort you to come in faith, believing in Jesus, like the disciples did here in chapter 2, verse 11. The second application that is to be drawn is an apparent growing faith that the disciples had. It was maturing, progressing, growing. The faith of the disciples was active in chapter 1, as each of them experienced their own epiphany of Christ. Each one of them had a faith moment. Andrew declared to Peter, we have found the Messiah. Philip said to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Then Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. However, here in chapter 2, verse 11, John tells us that the disciples believed in Jesus as a result of the sign. In other words, their faith in Jesus, which was already active, was confirmed and strengthened by the cup of the new covenant. In witnessing the cup, their faith was strengthened. This is one of the things that happens when you and I partake of the Eucharist. Along with communing with Christ, our faith is also strengthened as we remember the work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Considering this, I recognize that many of us may feel like a smoldering wick or a broken reed this very morning. In fact, your faith may seem very, very weak. 
And could it be that you are trusting in your own version of six stone jars? Could it be that you are trying to cleanse and justify yourself with old water? While that may be the case this morning, I encourage you to come to the table and have your faith strengthened. Not necessarily strengthened in the bread and wine, but in what the bread and wine signify. The body and the blood of Christ, broken and poured out for you so that you might be cleansed and made righteous. This morning, as you come to the table, leave all of your attempts at self-justification behind and come partake of the cup of the new covenant and experience the new creation. Furthermore, the growing faith of the disciples also communicates the truth that our justification is not determined by the perfect expression of faith, but rather by the perfect object of our faith, namely Jesus. Dear saints, this morning, I pray that you not only understand, but are also encouraged by the epiphany at the wedding in Cana. I pray that you leave here this morning moved by the sign of the miracle, which demonstrated that Jesus is God, the creator God who operates with absolute authority over the created order. I pray that you leave here today moved by the substance of the miracle, which prefigured the cup of the new covenant, which cleanses you and I from all our sins. This morning, I pray that you leave here today inspired by the epiphany, which would result in faith, the means of experiencing your own cleansing and your own justification. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Bow your head with me as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Father. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for his body broken and his blood shed. We are grateful for the cup of the new covenant. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would experience communion with Christ this very day. We pray that we would experience purification and cleansing and righteousness through faith. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers.